Hey everyone, Alex here. Due to some technical difficulties, we were unable to record this past week's message, but as we're in our vision and values series, we really still want to share the message with you. Um, so if you're following along, listening to the podcast, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which will be our teaching text for the message. You know, Saints Hill Church, as we are um, just in our third week of being a church in general, um, we're in a season of laying a foundation. And so um, the past couple of weeks, we talked about our vision and our mission. If you haven't heard those messages, please go back, listen to them. They are foundational for what we're trying to do as a church here in Newburgh. Um, but starting today and for the next 10 weeks or so, um, we're going to be moving into talking about our core values. Now, why values? What even is a value? Why base a church around a set of values? Well, a value is an idea or a principle that encapsulates how we want to build our culture and define our success. Um, we've even uh, printed out these uh, handy little bookmarks for you guys uh, with our 10 core values on them. Now, some quick clarifications about these values. Do we have more values? Yes. We have a ton more values, um, but really this is our best attempt at getting our culture, what we're aiming for, into 10 concise uh, values. So that's what's represented here. Um, are these values in any order of importance? Uh, not really. We, we value all of these things and we plan on leading into all of these things. Um, now, what's kind of the purpose of these values? Well, really, the purpose is twofold. The first purpose is this. These values will become how we steward the church. Um, so these values are going to become our metrics for success. You can look down the list of values. Are you seeing these things present in our church? If you are seeing these things present, then we're being successful as a church in our mind and heart. Um, these will also become our basis for decisions. When we go to make a decision about doing this or that philosophically um, or practically within the church, we're going to be using these values almost as a filter for our decision making. Um, the, the, these values are also what our leadership wants to be held to. I, I want you to hold me to this, and I know that I'm speaking for our elders uh, and our team when I say that as well. We want to be held to these values. Are these values present in our lives? Um, and then finally, we want our community to be held to these values as well. I think it would be amazing if um, in practically around Newburgh, if people knew our church by these 10 core values. So um, secondly, the second purpose for these values is we want to see your life take shape around them. Um, true kingdom values, we believe, can be put into any situation, whether it's the home or whether it's school or your vocation. And it can actually cause you to thrive and those around you to thrive because of those values. Um, it's one of the reasons why you won't find on our values uh, philosophical uh, ministry values, such as community groups um, or, or something like that. Because how do you do community groups in a home or with a family? It's like the two-year-old and the three-year-old. You're your own community group and mom and dad are their own community group. No, no, no. What we wanted to do is we wanted to figure out what are the kingdom's values that will cause people practically to live the culture of heaven here in Newburgh. So that's really what these are. These are our best attempt to put into words what the culture of heaven is like. And if we want Newburgh to look more like heaven, then these, we want these values to become the culture of your home. So tonight, our very first value is that God is good. 
Um, this context for this passage uh, in Exodus 34 is Moses asking what the name of God is. He says, who are you? And when he says that, when he asks for God's name, he's not just asking for a title. He's asking for a character. What are you like? So Exodus 34 verse 6, it says this, God answering Moses, he answers him this way. And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Now, why? Why does belief in God's goodness matter? I mean, it sounds super nice. Um, most people who will call themselves Christians believe this. So is this some kind of unique value to Saints Hill? Why is it even there? Well, here's the thing. What you think about God doesn't change God, but it changes how or even if you interact with him. I think very simply what's at stake with this value isn't a theological opinion or even a belief in what God can or will do in the world. But most importantly, what's at stake is if and if you have a relationship with God and what the quality of that relationship with God is. Dallas Willard in his book, um, Life Without Lack, which I just highly recommend, amazing book. He says this, trust is the key to life. If Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly, then trust is the key that unlocks that life. It's so simple, but it's true. Trust is the foundation for any relationship, and your relationship with God isn't any different. In fact, I would imagine everybody, if I were to ask you uh, to give a description of where you are at with God relationally, you would at least be able to give me an answer. Well, I'm at, I think I'm here right now with him, if you were to be honest. And, and I, I would imagine that to make that relationship even closer, there would probably be an area or a couple areas or maybe 10 areas where you would need to trust him more in order for that relationship to go deeper. So, so really with this value, trust is on the line. If God isn't good, then it becomes difficult to trust him with your life, with your family, with your work. It becomes difficult to be tender towards him or to be vulnerable. So for us as a church, the goodness of God is the cornerstone to all of our practical theology because we strongly believe that what God shares about his character is meant for us to experience. So this isn't, God's just not like, hey, I'm compassionate, gracious, loving, and fair. And uh, so just, you know, think about that. He's like, I'm compassionate, gracious, loving, and fair, Moses. It's, that is to become the context in which you live. We were created to live within the context of God's character. And so when you find yourself living outside of the context of his character, without compassion, without grace over your life, without love, without justice, you find human beings begin to shrivel. And if we don't live within the context of his character, then I think that we as Saints Hill Church have reason to question if we have understood and believed his character in our most deepest parts. See, I think many of us would say, yeah, God is good, but I would imagine for most of us that his goodness isn't necessarily the thing that we sense most deeply each day. 
So, so I think we need to think about his goodness to the point that it changes our experience. If there is a way of thinking about Jesus that doesn't produce the kingdom in you, then that thinking needs to change. Or, or maybe another, another way of thinking about it. If my thinking about God doesn't produce the kingdom in me, then the lack is on my side, not on the side of his character. So three thoughts for us as a family. If God is good, then I need to change my mind about first thought, sin, pain, and evil. You know, I can even almost feel it right now. Probably when I say that God is good no matter what, what comes to the surface is the, num- is the tension a- a- around sin, pain, and evil existing in the world. You think of the latest school shooting or the hurricanes that the East Coast has been slammed with recently or abuses of power that are rampant down throughout human history. Or, or maybe even you get personal with it and you think of how you were treated by that family member or friend. And so instantly I say, you know, God is good. And, you, and the question that comes up, the classic question is, if God is good and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? I think this question can tend to ignore, to be honest, what the scriptures say about sin, pain, and evil. And so I want us to actually refresh our understanding of where these things come from. The, the meta-narrative of the Bible teaches us that God is at war with Satan and has been at war with Satan since before the creation. Genesis 1 verse 2, it says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, these two words, formless and empty, are really important words, and in Hebrew, they're tohu vabohu, which is just fun to say, tohu vabohu. And what they mean in Hebrew, their, their meaning is that it's uncultivated and uninhabited land. And, and really, this is the condition of the land before God made it good, tov. We get this descriptor at the very beginning of Genesis that God makes everything. But then for the rest of the, book, of the, of the first chapter of Genesis, God is actually splicing and cutting and ordering and putting together the creation to make it a habitable place. I, I almost like to imagine creation before God cut and spliced and put it together to make it habitable is like outer space. You launch yourself into outer space without any kind of protection or atmospheric conditions to make life viable and you will die out there, right? And so it's almost like that. It's this formless and empty space that isn't suitable for humans or for animals. And in the ancient mind, what we have to understand is that when they would have heard that the earth before God spliced it and created Eden in that creation, that it was formless and empty, it was tohu vabohu, in their mind they're thinking, it's chaos. It's chaotic. And chaos in the ancient mind, it is closely related to evil, honestly. So they would have read this and they would have said, Wow, the earth, before God made it habitable for us, it, it was chaotic and evil. It, 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 there was, it was scary. There, there's uh, the, the surface of the deep. There's darkness over it. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's like, 
whoa, what's going on? Now, water also for the ancient Hebrew mind, water is chaotic, unpredictable. It can cause massive levels of destruction. And so water is also this, uh, has this connection with evil as well. If you notice in Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no longer a sea. Why is that? Because to the Hebrew uh, person, to their mind, the sea is associated with evil. And there we have in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, right? So they're thinking, oh, okay, so it's chaotic. Now, it's not just chaotic, but it seems through the meta narrative of Scripture that there is a war that is taking place. There's this enemy soldier in the snake who somehow has gotten into the garden and is beginning to thwart the plans of God. Where did he come from? Who is he? What is he doing in God's good creation? Well, the truth is this, is that Satan has already fallen. There is a battle that has already begun. And we get this insight from the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 8, it says this, Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Now, remember, even Jesus says that he remembers this moment. He says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you've got to imagine, if you're his disciples, you're like, when was that? And where were you standing? Because we didn't see that. What is he talking about? He's talking about before creation, when the battle between God and the angel of light, Lucifer, took place. God cast him out of his uh, realm where his will is being done, heaven, and, and, and got rid of him and his followers. Now, think about this. Adam is given this command to subdue and cultivate the land. Now, this word subdue in Hebrew has a meaning that is related to conquering in a military sense. So he's supposed to, in a military sense, conquer the land and to cultivate it. Why is that? Well, one way for us to think about Eden is that it is the military outpost of God's light taking over and pushing back the darkness. Or another way to think of it is Eden is the good part of creation where God is seeking to partner with humanity so that they might take the rest of the creation and actually cultivate that land and make it good alongside of God. So Eden is a place where where God has designed humans to partner with him to push back the tohu vabohu in the world so that shalom might take its place. Adam and Eve have an assignment, and it's to spread God's kingdom on earth. And in chapter 3, we find that what brings the movement of God's kingdom is actually related to the same thing that can bring the movement of the kingdom of Satan, and it's that humans have a choice. Humans have agreement, and whoever they agree with, that's the kingdom that they spread. Agree with God's kingdom, Tov. Agree with the kingdom of the enemy. And what we'll see is the vandalism of God's shalom happen in the garden. And unfortunately, in chapter 3, that's what we see. Now, why does belief in God's goodness matter so much? What am I getting at? Well, it matters so much because the very first sin in chapter 3 was the result of a lack of trust between humanity and God. 
Does God actually have our good in mind? Or does this serpent have a better taken worldview on the way on how things really are? And so this shows us that access to experiencing God's goodness, it comes from aligning our agreement with him. And conversely, evil comes from aligning our agreement with Satan. So, so seriously, like wherever you're at, think of any evil caused by humans in the world. Just what comes to mind? I bet you would be hard pressed to find any that isn't connected with an agreement with Satan. Satan began the vandalism of God's shalom there in the garden, aided by human agreement, and he is seeking to do it ever since. It's, the, it's why he didn't come into the garden with a stick or a knife or a gun. He came with a suggestion because he knew he didn't have authority to actually conquer humans. <laughs> it's a whole nother can of worms. Humans have authority that God's vested in them as being image bearers, and that authority can only be uh, taken through agreement rather than force. So Jesus, he, he knows this. He says to us in the Gospels, he says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so when you, you know, just like if I were to touch a surface and leave a fingerprint there, if you look around the world and you see stealing, uh, death, and destruction, what you can say is, oh, that has the fingerprints of Satan on it. Where Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. What does that mean? Well, it means that when you see the fingerprints of life and life abundantly, I think God's been here. I think he's been here. But many of us, you know, we hear that. And and still for some of us, I would imagine, we root our understanding of where evil comes from in God. And so inevitably, here's the question that comes up. Well, what about Job? What about Job? And, and gosh, there's so much great teaching that's been done on Job. Uh, it's, I, I just want to recommend the Bible Project to you. If you haven't listened to their podcast on Job, uh, you, you should go and listen to it. It's, it was so helpful for me. Um, but I, I, whenever I hear that question, I honestly think, well, what about Jesus? See, whatever you think you know about God that you cannot find in the person of Jesus, you have reason to question that belief. So for us at St. Cell, one of the things that we like to say is that Jesus Christ is perfect theology. It says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the very representation of the Father. It says he's the radiance of God's glory. It says in chapter 1 of Hebrews that he's the final word spoken by God. So God's spoken in many different ways at many different times. But finally, he's spoken by his son, Jesus and it says in John chapter 17 that Jesus came to reveal God's name. So Moses asked, what's your name? God gives a list of his character. In the, in the Gospels, we don't just see a list of his character traits. We see his character traits embodied in Jesus. So think about this. If the life of Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father, then we learn about God's character through the actions of Jesus. So a couple questions for you. Do we see Jesus going around giving sickness to people or taking sickness away by healing them? We see him not giving sickness, but taking it away. So does God 
cause sickness in people's lives? Well, I don't know because probably not. <laughs> because when I look at Jesus, the very representation of the Father, is he giving sickness or taking it away? He's taking it away. Or, or do, do we see Jesus causing storms or calming them? Well, the one example that we see in the scriptures of Jesus and a storm, he's actually calming the storm. So when a, a massive storm hits our country, our response shouldn't be, oh, well, this is God's judgment on those people because of their sin. That's ignoring the fact that, Jesus, that God judged all sin on the cross on Jesus. He doesn't have any more judgment left for us. He has just love left for us, and he's, he invites anybody to come take part in that love. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at that storm and go, oh, they were pretty bad. There was some gambling, some prostitution going on. So yeah, that makes sense that that storm would come to them. No, we can't find that in the life of Jesus. So we can't attribute that to the character of God. Whatever you think you know about God that you cannot find in the person of Jesus, you have reason to question whether you have the correct view of God. But, but what about God's will? Like, isn't God's will being done? Isn't this all his will? Well, I, I don't think so, because why would Jesus have asked us to pray that God's will would be done if it was already being done? Like, do you understand that a father is in charge of a home, but not everything that happens under the roof of that home is the will of the father? Like I, I, growing up, my dad was the, da he was the father of the house, but not everything that happened within our house was his will. So I, I would, I would put this to you. God is in charge, but he's not in control. He has given us far too much authority as humans for that to be the case. God in control looks like a garden without a tree in it. God in control looks like a garden without, without humans having the ability and free will to choose. But when he blessed us with that ability, when he honored us with that, with that choice, what he did is he said, I, I am, I, I'm powerful, I'm in charge, but I will not control human beings. They have free will to choose good or evil. So, God doesn't cause evil, but he is so good at bringing good out of evil that sometimes we can think that he caused all of it. And so it's important for us to go to the scriptures to use Jesus, his character, his life as the filter. Let's source good and evil correctly. God is good. Secondly, if God is good, then the next place that my mind must change is in relation to abundance and scarcity. The way that we treat our resources reflects quite poignantly what we think about God and his resources. Jesus talked about money quite often because money can very easily reveal your most secret beliefs without ever asking your permission to do so. B being made in the image of God means that our character is rooted in our belief about God, so much so that what we believe God is, we inevitably become. So one of the first things to go if you believe that God isn't actually good is your generosity. And, and you can reverse engineer that as well. If you lack a generous heart, then you may find the problem rooted in what you believe about God. You, you, you may actually question, well, does he have my best interest in mind? I'm not even sure that he really likes me all that much. I don't know if I can trust him to provide. 
And so that's those beliefs slowly eat away at your ability to be generous. But, but guys, a study of the Bible reveals that Jesus isn't just generous, but he sets the tone for generosity with his death. Romans chapter 8, just the, the seminal chapter, maybe my most favorite chapter in the Bible. Romans 8 verse 31 through 33 says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's what Paul is getting at. He says this, The one who paid this high price for you, and that high price for you was his life, when he paid that price with his life, it didn't deplete the resources of heaven. It set a standard for the type of love and the type of forgiveness and the type of gifts God wants to give you throughout the rest of your life. So rather than it being this thing that depleted the resources of heaven, it set the bar for what God thinks you deserve and what he wants to give you throughout your life. So if he set the standard with his life, how will he not also give you everything else? So in every situation, this has to become, this is, this is a heavenly way of thinking. This is what it means to renew our minds in every situation. When the bill comes, when the doctor calls, when that situation at work goes sideways, when the relationship is breaking down in every situation, no, the standard for the way that God wants to bless me is with his life. So he's going to give me the rest. I actually get to walk in faith based on Romans 8.31 because it, how he's given everything, won't he give? He's given his life, won't he give me everything else included? So we need this belief, guys, to move from the orphan mentality to the thinking of sons and daughters. How many of you guys understand that when we were brought into Christ, it says that we were adopted into a new family. And when we're adopted into a new family, what that means is that we have a new, a new way of living. There's a whole new family code. We, it's like we get a new last name. And so when we start thinking things that aren't congruent with the new last name, the scriptures are so vital for us to come in line with them and say, oh, I actually can't believe this way any longer because I've been adopted into a new family. See, more often than not, I think we think of God as being the angry at worst or stingy at best father who is more stressed out by work and bills than a father who is carefree with an answer to every problem. So which is the correct view? Jesus says, that God is a good father who gives good gifts. We should believe him. He, Jesus says that God is a good father who gives good gifts. And he, said, he, he compares the good gifts that God gives to the kind of gifts that fathers and mothers give here on earth. He's like, you guys give good gifts, but God gives even better gifts. And any parent knows you are literally, when Christmas rolls around or the birthday rolls around, you're literally scheming together to figure out how best to, to just blow your kids' minds with that, with that gift. 
Um, I'm not a parent, but um, this past week, we, my wife uh, is a nanny and there's these three boys that she nannies in Portland and um, just phenomenal boys. Uh, they're so fun. We've been around their family for the past three years or so. And uh, this past week, the uh, parents got away. And so they came and stayed with us. And um, I went and picked them up from school. And it's like when Alex picks them up from school, it's like no question if we're getting ice cream, it's just where. And so they come out and they're just like, hmm, uh, maybe we could go to Yo Choice or we could go to 50 Licks. What do you guys want to do? And they're just, that's the, just the discussion. It's not can we get ice cream? It's where. And so they, they end up on Yo Choice. So we go to Yo Choice. And I, I told him, I'm like, look, guys. I'm going to actually get the amount of ice cream and then you can pick whatever toppings you want, okay? Because look, those levers are up high and gravity just helps you and you're just, and your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You're just going to get so much. So we get in there and um, they just ignore that altogether. They get their bowls and they just go to town. So they just got tons of ice cream and they, so they get their toppings, they go buck wild. And then we get into the car and uh, finally one of them uh, says to me, Thank you, Alex. And, uh, you know, I thought about that for a moment. I'm like, I don't need you to thank me. My reward for this is seeing the delight in your eyes as you're tasting that sugar. <laughs> That's my delight is that I got to delight you. And, and But how you guys understand that ice cream that you're thankful for tastes better than ice cream that you're not thankful for. <laughs> that's their reward actually is, is the gratitude that comes, but my reward is seeing their delight. Look, how much better is God? If God is good and he has an abundance and he has promised to give us all things in Christ, then my response to lack in life cannot be with just what I have in my resources. It must be a response that takes into account what my father's resources are and what my father's disposition towards me is. When you do that, watch generosity explode in your life because you know what you've been given, you know what is at your disposal, and you know that God is good and that he longs to bless you as well. This should root out jealousy. We should never be jealous of one another. Instead, when we see uh, that somebody else is blessed with something that we also would like to be blessed with, our response is rejoicing that God is good enough to give them that gift and that healthy children don't compete for the Father's blessing. Instead, we say, if God is good enough to do that for them, I can't wait to see what he'll do in my life. So Father, Instead of this drawing me into an idolatry over the thing that you've given them, I'm going to draw near in relationship to you, source the gift correctly, and say, would you do it again in my life? Would you do it again in my life? Finally, if God is good, then we need to change how we think about ourselves. We need to think about our identity differently. Where most of us find our identity is the place that offers us the most love, joy, peace, and purpose. And so many people find their identity in a job or in a person or a hobby or in sports. Um, but the risk is this, is that if you lose that thing that was filling up your identity, or if that person lets you down in some way, then where do you go for your identity? I actually think this is why it was so important that Jesus asked Peter who Peter believed that Jesus was. If you remember, there's this moment 
on uh, in in uh, Caesarea Philippi, where um, Jesus says to Peter, "Who do you say that I am?" Now, now, why would he ask that? Was Jesus having some sort of identity crisis and he needed Peter to affirm him? He's like, hey guys, loaves and fishes, did you see that? Um, so who do you think that I am? Anyone? Anyone? Is he fishing for compliments? No. God doesn't have identity problems. He asked Peter the question because he didn't want Peter to have an identity problem. See, if we're made in the image of God, then the image that we foster of him in our heart and mind determines who we become. (laughs) You become the idea of who you think God is. The image that we foster of him in our hearts and our minds determines who we become. Many of you will probably remember the name Dylan Roof. Um, he was the young man who a couple years ago walked into a predominantly black church in South Carolina and ended up killing nine people with a gun. And uh, just horrific story. I don't know if you remember kind of what the cultural temperature was at that time, but it, it, was, it was full of angst on one side, full of anger on one side, and full of people saying we should forgive Dylan Roof on a completely other side. And there was this columnist for um, NPR that wrote this article that it just caught my attention. I'm like, oh man, I got to read that. The title of the article was this, why I will never forgive Dylan Roof. And the, the columnist was just really um, mirroring and expressing her own angst and frustration and pain over this, uh, this latest mass shooting. And she, she said this, she said, I am entirely confident in saying that I will never become a mass murderer. And so I don't feel obligated to forgive mass murderers in return. I read that, I thought, oh my gosh. See, what the author of this article is saying is that I will only forgive what I could see myself doing. I'm God, essentially, and I will choose who is forgiven based upon my own morality. Do not be mistaken, that reflects a theology. It reflects a theology that God doesn't really forgive, that he isn't really that good. So come on, guys, we don't need to forgive either. Let your own moral compass become the standard for which you decide who should be forgiven and who shouldn't. But the the, the thing is, guys, God's forgiveness and adoption into his family isn't a good idea. It actually changes how we live personally and how we treat others who wrong us. So so God doesn't forgive us based on whether or not he could see himself doing what we did. Instead, Ephesians chapter 4 teaches us that his actions towards us, his heart towards us, it's not those things are not based in human lack and what seems reasonable, but they're based on the riches of his glory. So God isn't up there thinking, well, gosh, I I wouldn't have done that. And so I'm not going to forgive that. He says, how much love, how much mercy, how much forgiveness do I have to pour out? That's the measure I'm pouring out on all of humanity to anyone who wants it. What this means 
is that your sin doesn't eat away at his love, his sacrifice, or his forgiveness. When he made the payment for you with his life, it it wasn't this one-time payment and that was that. And each time you sin, it's like he has this forgiveness tank for you. And every time you sin or make a mistake, the forgiveness is just lowering in the tank. And some of you are just on the red line. And so you better be careful. No, his death and resurrection was a mark for the kind of love and payment he will make for you for the rest of your life. You see, it can be easy for us to think that the sin that we committed before we became Christians was paid for by Jesus, but that whatever we do after that ticks away at the love that God has for us. It's like I can understand that, yes, when I, when I made that uh, agreement with God that I was a sinner and that I had committed um, sin against God's good uh, truth and law, Um, when I did that and I came to Jesus and I said, I want what you did on the cross and in the grave to count for me, we can understand, okay, yeah, whatever I had done up to that point, that was forgiven. But then once we're Christians, we get into this mode where instead of receiving what God has done for us, we think that we have to earn it because the weight of our sin actually weighs heavier on our minds and hearts than the love that he has for us each morning. See, here's the thing. For all of us who are listening to this podcast right now, all of our sin was in the future for God. (laughs) All of our sin was in the future for Jesus. And so he made a payment for all of it 2,000 years ago. And what this has to do is it has to make us realize, yes, Jesus paid for what I did before I came to him. And when he made that payment 2,000 years ago, it paid for everything else. And so this changes the way that we think about ourselves and about others. You've been now given the identity of forgiven and your whole life lives with a banner over it. And it's this empowered by the grace of God. So when we wake up in the morning and the reality that weighs heavy on our hearts is, I'm not sure that God actually loves me. What we need to do is wash our mind and hearts with truth and what he did and and say, what you did for me, Jesus, it counted. And I'm going to live in the fact that it counted more so than the the weight of, of my sin and what I have maybe done the night before or in this past season. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on you instead of getting internal and focusing on what's wrong with me. So how does this then move us to treat others? Well, it just moves us to forgive them and wash them with the same measure of grace that we've been shown. Take that love that he gave to you and extend it to the family member that you can't seem to get along with or the, or the co-worker that just doesn't seem to understand your personality type or the roommate who just won't clean the house the way that everybody else is pitching in. Jesus says, that he will so completely fill your identity with him that it spills over onto the people around you. Have you got that kind of love and forgiveness within your identity yet? If you haven't, come and get it. It's on offer. Come and get it. So if God is good, then personally we must change our thinking around evil around abundance and scarcity, and around our identity. 
And so my commission to us as Saints Hill Church is to become really three different things as the church in Newburgh. I want us to become a church who worships in difficulty. You guys realize that, that we have an opportunity to offer God a gift that we can't give him in the next life. See, in the age to come, there won't be any question of whether we should worship or not. His glory, his presence, I would imagine would be quite convincing. But here in in present, there's evil, pain, and suffering. And so there, there are these things that happen in the world that could actually trick us into believing that maybe God isn't due praise. And there is something so powerful about going through a, a, diff, a time of difficulty and choosing in that time of difficulty to worship him regardless of the circumstances. This is what it means to give him a sacrifice of praise. And it is something so special and so rare. And it's something you cannot give him in the next life. So may we be known as the church that worships regardless of what our circumstances are because he's good. And we believe that. Secondly, I want us to become the kind of church that stands on the truth. I'm not saying that we won't have doubts. I'm not saying that we won't have things come up in in our lives that make us question God's goodness. But I'm just saying that we need to be the kind of church that sources where good comes from and sources where evil comes from correctly. And it's really a challenge when the pain comes, when, when the death happens, when the sickness is diagnosed. That's when it's difficult for because that's when it's questioned. We go, is he really good? And what we need to be is the kind of people that don't shape our theology around our experience, but shape our theology around the person and character of Jesus and source it correctly. Sourcing good and evil correctly either builds faith or it tears it down. And we're the people of faith. So let's stand on the truth. And then finally, I want us to become a generous church. Our time and our money and our forgiveness that we have as little Christs, as Christians, should be measured to what he has and his resources and what he's given to us. And so we're not stingy because God hasn't been stingy with us. We're generous because God's been generous with us. I dream of the day where, where somebody, one of you is standing in line at Knapp's Thriftway and you hand the cashier 20 bucks because you asked God who he wanted to bless that day. And he says, it's the cashier that you're going to go see later. And you hand them the $20 and they look at you and they say, you're the third person who's done that this week. Do you go to a church called Saints Hill Church? May we be known not by what we may lack in the moment, but by what he has contentment. It's not being okay with lack. It's just, but it's not being okay with lack. It's choosing to not define your present circumstances by lack and instead choosing that to define them, but by how God has been generous to you. May we be a church that worships in difficulty, stands on truth and is generous because God is good. Let me pray for you wherever you're at. 
Father, I thank you for um, your goodness. I thank you for the truth and how it really does set us free to be the kind of people that live in the way of Jesus, where we, we believe that the good that you've poured out comes from you in this world so we can be grateful. And the evil that we see, God, you're partnering with us to see it done away with. And we know our trajectory in Revelation chapter 21, that one day there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more pain. So we join with Christians down through history and saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in the time being, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Pour him out on uh, whoever's listening to this podcast right now. I pray for an increase of your tangible felt presence, God, that, that the theme of their day would be your goodness and they would find themselves living in hope and joy and peace as a result. In your name, amen.